Hello and welcome to the first episode of Utopia Talks, Hooked On. This is Shantanu and I will be your host. Today joining us, we have Dr. Divya Karnar, an Assistant Professor of Environmental Studies at Ashoka University. She has a PhD in Geography from the Rutgers University, USA, and a Master's in Wildlife, Biology and Conservation from the PG program run by the National Center for Biological Sciences and Center for Wildlife Studies. Prior to joining Ashoka, she consulted with the Bay of Bengal Program Intergovernmental Organization. Based on the work of her PhD, she co-founded In Season Fish, a sustainable seafood initiative. The primary focus of her work is marine conservation, fisheries management, the geography of seafood, climate and aquaculture, and common property theory. In 2019, she was also awarded the prestigious Future of Nature Award for marine conservation. for her work in sustainable fishing of sharks and olive ridley sea turtles she was also only the second indian to win it on a personal note i am fortunate and proud to be a student and really look forward to talking today professor thank you for joining us today for utopia's first ever podcast thank you thank you shantanu so let's jump right into it could you give us a brief overview of the problems that the indian market is facing from my understanding the biggest problem is bycatch or bycatch as fishermen often tend to catch other non-commercial fish which can't be sold and hence further disrupt the marine ecosystem what is the impact of this uh well that is certainly a problem that uh, affects our indian fisheries uh, it's actually called bycatch and um this is certainly an issue uh, i think one of the major uh, problems that is affecting fisheries all over the world is that the amount of fish that is being caught does not really keep up with the demand so uh, the demand is growing year after year but uh, in terms of fisheries resources those are limited and also our capacity uh, to catch them and uh, bring them to shore in a format that is acceptable to people is also limited because fish are a product that get uh, spoiled and um, rotten quite easily so it doesn't really stay for long it's not like it has a long shelf life so it's something that needs to be immediately harvested and consumed and uh, so getting our supply chains in order for all that is also an issue but uh, i think the largest issue is the big difference between uh supply and demand because uh, in many countries particularly in the northern hemisphere uh towards the temperate regions fisheries are quite different from what they are like in india right uh the temperate fisheries are uh, typically characterized by fewer species and each species has very large numbers and so uh, because most of the kind of conservation um Uh, paradigms and everything have been developed largely in developed countries from these northern temperate regions uh, they have been focused on this idea of catching um, particular uh, species at very regulated amounts to ensure that there is some kind of sustainability in the ecosystem right but our indian fisheries work quite differently because we are lucky enough to be a tropical country and the best part of being in the tropics is that uh, we have a lot of diversity so where in the northern hemisphere uh, in the northern regions we would catch like maybe 10 or 15 species in india we catch about 100 to 200 species 
and uh, this is really great because we therefore have uh, an option to eat a huge variety so um, yeah so because we have this huge diversity the same kinds of solutions that work in developed countries don't really work for us uh, it's not really possible for us to say that uh, if we want to eat pomfret or whatever that we have limits on the number of pomfrets that we catch because along with pomfrets a whole bunch of other species are also being caught just by virtue of the fact that we are a tropical country so uh, those kinds of solutions really don't uh, work in indian waters so telling fishermen that you need to fish better and you need to make sure that you're catching what people want to eat uh, doesn't really work in indian waters just because of this diversity so um it's quite important to then make sure that the market is in sync with the ecological reality of our oceans in india so that seems to be quite a big issue and uh, because for the most part right now from the work that we've done uh, it looks like the markets are not oh okay uh, we've done a survey with uh, about 500 people across most of the metros in india and uh, most of these people eat on average about 6 to 10 species whereas uh, people are catching 100 species so this uh, there's the, there's a huge gap between what the market is demanding and what people are catching and i think that is a big issue right so this is a very grave problem now given the severity is there anything that the indian government is doing to cope with this are there any incentives or subsidies or other form of policy to help these fishermen yeah so the indian government is has of course been very aware about the issues with respect to fisheries sustainability uh, from the 1800s i think under the colonial rule itself there was uh, regulations on fishing uh, under the indian uh, fishing act but uh, what that act primarily does is to uh to sort of decentralize authority and give states the authority to make regulations on fisheries right so now at the state level different states have done different things uh certain states have put in place uh, very uh, very very good actually mesh regulations on the size of the mesh that can be used in a net the thickness of the thread that can be used in a net and so on and these really make a lot of sense in terms of regulating some of the more harmful impacts uh, of fisheries uh, but one of the issues is that because this is being done at a state level uh, states that may be adjacent to each other have very different laws and so this creates opportunities for a lot of loopholes which then fishermen can exploit to ensure that they don't really have to comply with any of the laws in any of the states uh so this is one of the issues that there has to be some kind of coordination between the states with respect to their laws itself and the second issue that um, i found through my work is that for the most part uh the fisheries officials who are in the fisheries departments on the coast are a bit hesitant to actually implement many of the regulatory parts of this of these laws oh. just because they feel like it will bring them into huge conflict with the fishing community ah okay that makes sense um on that note is sustainable fishing an oxymoron 
We talk about sustainable fishing in the context of preventing overfishing. But on the flip side, how sustainable is fishing as an occupation for fishermen? Okay, so to answer this question, I think it would be important to look a little bit at the history of fishing. Okay. Uh, at least the recent history of fishing in India. And uh, if you do look at that, it was in about the 1970s that uh, the government started actively pushing particular types of fishing. I think before that, fishermen were largely uh, left to themselves and had to adapt or adopt uh, different technologies on their own. But in the 1970s, the government, the Indian government started actively pushing uh, what they thought of as very modern uh, ways to fish, which were primarily imports from uh, Europe, particularly Norway. And um, in Norway, they were sort of phasing out a particular form of fishing called uh, bottom trawling. This is where uh, there is a net that is dragged across the ocean floor and in front of the net, they typically have some kind of heavy structure. It may be a board or a, a concrete beam or something like that. And uh, that heavy structure uh, digs through the seabed and suspends all the sediments into the water. And then the net which is dragged behind it catches whatever has been suspended in the water. Right. So... Uh, this has been used primarily to catch prawns because they are organisms that live at the bottom of the ocean. And they are also organisms that, as fishermen found, have a very, very good market abroad. So in the 1970s, when this kind of technology was introduced, uh, obviously at that time when it was first introduced, very few fishermen could afford to buy into this kind of technology. And uh, they made huge profits. Uh, because they were able to sell to export markets. But uh, by the 1990s, when uh, this kind of technology had become ubiquitous, I mean, most most fishermen along most parts of the coast were trying to switch into this form of fishing, uh, that whole uh, profit dynamic had changed. By then, uh, people had started realizing that scraping the seabed in this way uh, actually kind of destroys marine ecosystems because the seabed is really important in the ecological functioning of the marine ecosystem. And it takes about seven years for the seabed to recover oh. from uh, this kind of a scraping. And obviously, with more and more people fishing using this method, the seabed wasn't being given that time. So a seabed that is still in recovery was being uh, further uh, exploited. And so uh, this kind of uh, shift in the marine ecosystem meant a shift in uh, finances also for uh, fishermen. So at that time, a study was commissioned by the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations uh, looking at the finances of different forms of fishing. And what they found was that uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, actually being a small-scale fisherman was far more uh, profitable than investing in any of these kinds of uh, capital-intensive large-scale fishing. Just because of the fuel costs involved, the capital costs involved and so on, it was actually more profitable to remain small-scale. Right. So um, I, I'm not sure uh, how many fishermen actually realize that because I think largely the government discourse has been that if you invest 
in these large scale technologies industrial technologies you will automatically uh, be much better off than your peers uh, but uh, this particular study actually disproved that theory uh, it actually showed that being small scale was better in uh, yeah in just in terms of profit loss type of things uh, i'm not sure how that has changed over time now given that the marine ecosystem has undergone many other severe changes both in terms of uh, like things like the tsunami the various cyclones that have hit the coast and affected uh, both the just the shape of the marine seabed and so on and also the coast uh, as well as climate change so all these things have had an impact and i don't know now if someone does a study like this what exactly uh the equation will be right after having spoken about marine fishing as a whole let's talk about a topic little closer to home what is the shark market like in india are there a lot of op- opaque supply chains and where is the demand for shark meat coming from yeah so the shark market in india was something that was uh, quite surprising to me because this was Uh, i was exposed to this idea that sharks need conservation etc from reading a lot of literature from abroad and all the literature from abroad keeps talking about how uh, the main sort of threat to sharks was coming from the demand that was being uh, that was sort of growing in china and southeast asia for shark fins because shark fin soup is considered to be a delicacy served at weddings etc uh so it seemed like that demand was really driving global harvests for sharks and so on so this is what i expected to see when i went into the field and started doing my research on sharks and certainly when i uh, first started in about 2011 uh in tamil nadu that is what i saw for the most part people were sort of catching sharks for their fins because the fins were bringing in uh, large amounts but the other thing i noticed is that the practice of catching sharks looked very different in india compared to what had been described abroad oh in india people were catching the whole shark and bringing it onto the shore whereas abroad they were doing this really brutal practice of just cutting off the fins and leaving the rest of the body of the shark back in the water so a shark without fins can't really swim uh, it can't breathe in fact because it can't swim and so it effectively just dies over there but it's just that they wanted to catch so many sharks that they didn't have space to keep the bodies they were filling their entire holes with just fins uh, and they were making huge amounts of money with that so uh, in india the practice looked quite different because we were bringing in the whole sharks uh, but uh, clearly the government had also caught wind of the fact that sharks were in trouble uh, India is a signatory of many uh, international biodiversity and other uh, wildlife agreements uh, which sort of uh, put some pressure on the Indian government to act towards the conservation of species that have been listed in those particular agreements right so uh, the Indian government put in place a policy that banned this practice this brutal practice of finning which is just the removal of the fins and throwing the body overboard uh but it was quite a strange policy in that it had no basis in the way fishing was do- being done in india because almost no one was actually practicing finning in india in any case 
yeah so then i began to uh, look a little bit closer at what was happening with the rest of the shark because clearly the fins had market but what were they doing with the rest of the body and then it turns out that there are uh, a huge number of different supply chains for various parts oh uh, so what i noticed is that uh, a lot of the small sharks were coming into the local markets where people were eating them a uh, lot of the large sharks were just sort of disappearing the, i would see them at the landing site but then i would never see them again and it turns out that they are being uh, sort of dissected and uh, exported for various products so the shark liver is uh, exported for oil uh, which is fr- which is the product from which they are planning to make that squalene which was recently in the news uh, because it's required for the covid vaccine right um so there's some danger that uh, more sharks might be fished in order to produce this covid vaccine um and so the shark liver is made is sent for that uh, increasingly i was, i've also been noticing that a lot of shark meat is being exported particularly to the us and the uk uh, so i mean it's quite a strange uh, kind of supply chain where uh the fishermen if you ask them where is this going they just know the closest point in terms of oh xyz trader takes it from us but they have no idea where it goes from there and uh, trying to follow these supply chains uh is quite confusing uh with respect to any fish not just sharks with respect to any fish in india uh so for instance what i noticed is that a lot of uh these fish processing companies and fish export companies are based on the west coast so they might come to the east coast collect fish uh, go back to the west coast process it in some way some of it may be exported some of it may be sold back on the east coast so following these supply chains is uh, extremely confusing and particularly for sharks where uh, i think a lot of people are aware that there are many species that are threatened protected uh they are not supposed to be sold internationally and so on i think people are far more uh, secretive about these kinds of species um and given that they are already part of these kind of globalized supply chains it's quite difficult to follow through and exactly figure out how they are moving across uh, different kinds of markets so is most of the demand for indian sharks not generated from india is it mainly for export is that correct uh no it's difficult to clearly say that because there is quite a large demand in india itself this was something that wasn't uh, it was recognized but it wasn't really understood how much of a demand there is until recently uh but i was also surprised to see that uh, the kind of products that were going outside india were not limited to just the fins that there are also meat and other products that are going outside india so there is definitely a demand within india uh, but there is also a demand outside and now uh, it's like one of the things that i'm trying to do right now is to figure out uh, exactly how much of the demand is fueled by domestic consumption versus uh, export so now given that there's such a strong demand for sharks what is the impact of the absence on the marine system as sharks are apex predators and on top of the food chain how does this affect f- fish that are lower down the food chain are they thriving given that they aren't being hunted as much so when sharks are removed from the ocean 
a lot of their prey animals their population begins to explode and uh, something happens which is called a trophic cascade which is basically that uh, the entire food chain starts to see impacts of the removal of any one of its components and the, these kinds of impacts are very difficult to predict so there are some scientists who did some research in lakshadweep and uh, this the fishermen in lakshadweep actually pointed this out they they seem to understand the whole problem but uh, it took the scientists a couple of years to sort of confirm that uh, uh, this uh, this kind of issue was happening in the lakshadweeps the fishermen in lakshadweeps found that um, a lot of their fish which they were using either as bait to catch tuna or uh, that they, they were eating themselves a lot of these fish had started declining their populations had started uh, really diminishing and so they kept saying that uh, the reason that these fish are disappearing is because of green sea turtles now green sea turtles are known to be plant eaters okay they eat only sea grass so initially when the fishermen kept saying this the scientists were kept laughing at them saying what do you mean i mean these are basically vegetarians and you are blaming them for not having fish and so then later on uh, the scientists because the fishermen were kept insisting on this they started doing studies and they realized that these fish that the fishermen wanted to catch uh, all of them needed these sea grass beds either as the areas where they were laying their eggs or as the nurseries where the young ones would you know stay in some relative safety and grow slightly big before they moved out into the open ocean so these uh, sea grass beds were very important for the fish and with an explosion in the population of green sea turtles the turtles were basically like coming in and mowing all those lawns uh, of sea grass and therefore that was not allowing the fish to reproduce and survive so then they started looking at why are, why is there suddenly a population explosion of sea turtles and uh, originally they thought that it may be because there's so much of sea turtle conservation people are all over uh, that part of the ocean in the maldives in sri lanka in india there are a lot of conservation projects that are trying to protect sea turtles and initially they thought it may be that but later on they realized it can't be only that there has to be a combination of other factors also involved and they realized that one of the main things that had happened is that large sharks had been removed uh, from that ecosystem on the southwest coast of the um, in of india in that southern part of the arabian sea uh there are a lot of shark fishing communities there and they had uh, really removed a large uh, portion of the um, big shark population the sharks that grow very large so uh, these are the types of sharks that would typically eat a green sea turtle juvenile and prevent them from even reaching adulthood so because the sharks were not there the sea turtles had exploded and because the sea turtles exploded the sea grass disappeared and when the sea grass disappeared the fish disappeared so these fishermen had really hit the nail on the head but uh, it took scientists some time to figure out exactly how that trophic cascade worked wow yeah that's that's extremely fascinating so given all of this how would one go about conservation and sustainable fishing if locals are adamant on harvesting a threatened species 
as it can very possibly be a source of livelihood for them with respect to trying to balance sustainable fishing and uh, conservation i think uh, in that way we are quite blessed to be in a tropical country where there are so many options in terms of species right because we have over 100 species that people are catching uh, because there is the potential to develop markets for a huge number of these species one can always try to switch between uh the species that are currently preferred and are sort of tending towards unsustainability towards some other uh, varieties that are more sustainable and perhaps can be fished more sustainably as well okay so uh, because of this we actually have a lot of potential solutions at hand where it just requires uh consumers to sort of change their preferences as well as for fishermen to change their practices and uh the important thing is that both these changes go hand in hand and they are in sync and this will ensure that uh, we don't keep putting pressure on threatened species so how does the organization that you have established in season fish go about working and achieving towards the larger broader goal of sustainable fishing in season fish is a sustainable seafood initiative which uh, was developed based on the work that i had done with fishing communities during my phd uh for my phd i had i got the opportunity to spend a lot of time with fishing communities uh, i worked primarily on the west coast but also had a chance to interact with uh, fishing communities on the east coast of india and i found that for the most part uh, there were many fishing communities that had begun to see the kinds of declines that were happening in the ocean and were alarmed about it and were already trying to do something to stop it and uh, the communities that i worked with on the west coast i noticed that they were uh, actually coming together and making decisions about how to fish where to fish and when to fish in such a way that they were catching whatever was ecologically available rather than just blindly following market demands but uh, one of the things that some of these fishermen told me was that a lot of conservationists and ecologists keep coming to fishermen and asking them uh, why don't you do something to be more sustainable whereas they said that they are people who are already thinking about it because for them if the fisheries die they will die too that is their entire life and livelihood so they are certainly very invested in making sure that it is sustainable uh, but the market is not and they felt like if they go with whatever is ecologically available rather than whatever is the highest value species uh, they just can't manage to make ends meet because nobody wants to buy many of these ecologically available species so this uh, this distinction between what the market demands and what is uh, actually supposed to be caught uh, in indian fisheries i think that is where i felt like there was a big gap and this was something that research perhaps couldn't really solve one needed to take a different approach and so that's why uh, i co-founded this initiative called in season fish along with chaitanya krishna and others and um, we have basically been doing a lot of work at the consumer end trying to create awareness among seafood eaters about uh, what is the diversity of seafood that one can eat in india 
uh, also to sort of curate a whole bunch of traditional recipes for unusual species which people in cities at least have forgotten how to eat uh, uh, coastal communities have recipes for a large number of species which are very specific to those species and to the particular physics and chemistry of uh, that particular type of species and uh, th- these are kind of uh, kinds of knowledge that have been lost Uh, i think as people have started making things like fish tikka and you know tandoori fish or whatever uh, we sort of have started treating seafood as if it's the same as any of our other agriculturally produced uh, ingredients uh, i mean when you say chicken chicken you're referring to just one species but when you say fish in india you're referring to at least 100 species because there are at least 100 species of fish uh, here so it's it doesn't really make sense to use these kind of generic terms when talking about seafood and i think that's something that we are trying to bring some awareness to right i think that's a, a great initiative so what kind of work specifically do you do at in season fish uh, so we take uh, uh, many different approaches to thinking about seafood sustainability one approach is that we try to um, just create awareness among consumers through social media and uh, other kinds of uh, awareness programs where we are just telling people about the diversity that's available the second thing that we say uh, is that one should keep in mind that you can't eat the same fish throughout the year because uh, these fish are wild animals they are not like our uh, chickens and other uh, species that we farm so they definitely have patterns and uh, they they are basically like fruits i mean in many languages uh, the word for fish is fruit of the sea uh, and it is like that so just like you would eat a mango only in the summer because that's when it fruits Uh, there are similarly times of the year when you should eat fish and there are times of the year when you should not eat fish so for instance uh, you should not eat fish when it's breeding because only then you can ensure that next year you will have a fish to eat uh, only if you allow it to breed but i think one of the myths that people have is that um all fish breed during the monsoon or all fish breed during whatever is the government designated fishing ban period and this doesn't really work in nature because it's not as if uh, all the fish somehow magically come onto the same kind of biological clock uh, they don't and they breed at different times during the year and this is information that has been collected through research by Uh, our government institutions as well as by individual researchers and one of the things that in season fish has done is that we've put this information together on our website and we provide a list of uh, which species is breeding at which time so that you know when you can eat something and when you should avoid it so uh, the second thing that we say is to eat seasonally Uh, but the third thing and this i think is quite important is to source your seafood from a sustainable source and how you can identify a sustainable source is to make sure that you are at least buying from a small scale fisherman and you are not trying to support one of these large scale industrial trawling vessels which as i said before destroys the seabed and so on so overall uh, we sort of take this three part approach one is to ensure that you eat diverse 
second is to eat seasonal and to buy from small scale sustainable fishermen right so could you tell us a little bit more about what we can do at an individual level to make a difference i would say uh, for one i think it's important to try and at least uh, fi- find out a little bit more about the fish that you prefer to eat uh, it's always good to know the ingredients that uh, you are using in your food and particularly with uh, animal type of ingredients it's good to know something about their history biology where they come from things like that so <clears throat> do a little bit of background research about your favorite uh, type of fish before you eat it okay a second thing would be that when you go to a restaurant and order seafood always make it a point to ask what species you're going to be served and where it has come from um for the most part i think uh, many waiters and all that are not trained about all these things but i think as more and more people go around and start asking these questions the restaurant uh, management begins to feel the need to also ask these questions themselves because as more and more customers are asking they will also begin to feel like oh my god we don't know anything we should probably figure this out so uh, definitely ask what what are you being served and um where is it coming from and i think the final thing my personal recommendation would be to try to avoid uh, species like basa which are farmed fish because uh, for the most part the practices of farming fish that are followed in india do not meet uh, global standards oh. in many cases uh, they have been found to be found to be containing excess of antibiotics and other kinds of uh, um, materials that you do not want in your food so uh, try to avoid those kinds of species if at all possible those are some great tips please do check out in season fish they have a website and on instagram the handle is in season fish please also do follow us at etopia on instagram our instagram handle is underscore etopia underscore we hope you've enjoyed this podcast and have some things to take away from it professor thank you so much for joining us thank you shantanu thanks a lot for having me also for our listeners please stay tuned for more podcasts coming soon